from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. This morning's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. If you'd like to follow along, please turn with me in your pew Bibles to page 654. Please, let's listen to God's Word. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring, blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Listen now for God's word. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. 
Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This, too, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we may be different people. And those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, the risen one, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the 19th century Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy was actually baptized into the Orthodox Church. Later on in life, after he had moved away from the church of his birth and after fame and, and wealth had come to him, he had what we would say in contemporary language was a midlife crisis. I don't mean to be glib about it because it was much more serious than that, better expressed with the words of St. John of the Cross, he experienced a dark night of the soul. He experienced a crisis. He experienced a crisis of meaning. He experienced a crisis of faith. And to describe this season of his life, Tolstoy liked to tell and recount an old fable that came from the Far East that begins with a man being chased by ravenous and raging animals, and the man finds his escape, finds his safety by jumping into a well. And as he descends, as he plummets down into that well, he reaches out and he grabs onto some branches that were coming out, protruding from the crevices of the well wall. And now he is holding on for dear life. And as he does, two mice, one black and one white, begin to make their way out onto the branches, and they begin to gnaw at them. They begin to bite away in a slow and methodical fashion. These same branches produced a very sweet honey that the man, as he, as he held on for dear life, would lick and taste from time to time. The honey in the story represents the good and the just, and the mice are gnawing away at that which produces the virtuous life. They're gnawing away at that which brings good into the world. The man is quite aware that at any moment the branches might break, and there at the very bottom of the well sits another beast. This time, it's a dragon waiting for the man's strength to give way, waiting for the mice to do their work, waiting for lunch. This is what Tolstoy wrote regarding his own crisis as it related to this allegory. He said, in the same way, I'm clinging to the tree of life 
knowing full well that the dragon of death inevitably awaits me, ready to tear me to pieces. And I cannot understand how I've fallen into this torment. And I try licking the honey that once consoled me, but it no longer gives me pleasure. The white mouse and the black mouse day and night are gnawing at the branch from which I'm hanging. The honey no longer tastes sweet. I can see only one thing, the inescapable dragon and the mice, and I cannot tear my eyes away from them. And this is no fable, but the truth, the truth that is irrefutable and intelligible to everyone. For Tolstoy, the dragon represents death. The dragon represents his own mortality. The mice represent the violence and the suffering and the sin and the grief and the despair and the ruthless competition and the absurd futility that marks much of our lives. Those things that would seek to undo or even mock the good or undo and mock the just or undo and mock what is virtuous. Tolstoy longing to be delivered and rescued from this well began to consider his options. He wrote about these considerations in his memoirs. At one moment, he considered a life of ignorance where he would simply pretend, where he would simply ignore both the dragon at the bottom of the well and the mice gnawing at the branches. He could pretend the anxiety and the crisis and his mortality simply didn't exist. He also considered a life of hedonism, a life lived exclusively for pleasure. He could, as the scriptures say, eat, drink, and be merry. He could silence the questions. He could numb the pain by making personal gratification his life's aim and goal. Finally, he considered a passive response where he would just simply wait and see what would happen as if something would change, maybe naturally or even even accidentally that something might change in his situation. Tolstoy wondered, would these considerations adequately address this crisis of meaning? Would these considerations adequately address this crisis of faith? And at his lowest point, Tolstoy asked himself this question, what is the meaning of my life. What is the meaning of my life? He pondered this question over and over and over again, and the only answer he could reach at that moment in time, in that moment in his life's journey, the only answer was nothing. Nothing. To be sure, Tolstoy isn't the only one in that well staring up at mice and looking down at dragons. The mice gnaw at the good of life and exacerbate the crisis. Where is meaning? Where is meaning 
In a world where bombs rip through the streets of Boston and Baghdad and Brussels, and terrorism continues to be on the move in the world, where is meaning in light of our politics where anger, disenfranchisement, apathy, marginalization of the other, racism and classism and self-righteousness are on full display? Where is meaning for the one that faces an illness that has turned their world upside down and inside out? Where is meaning for the one who has just been released from prison, who wants to work, but no employer will hire them? Where is meaning for the one working hard for what is right and what is moral and what is just when their efforts seem utterly ineffective? Where is meaning when a high school student takes his own life or when a widow cannot escape the grief that constantly shadows her, or when a marriage crumbles and comes to an end? Where is meaning for the person who sleeps on the streets night after night after night? Where is meaning for the family that commits to an overloaded schedule in the hopes of fulfillment but only finds exhaustion and disconnection with one another at the end of the day? Where is meaning for the teenager who has become so disgusted with being judged by what they do in the classroom or on the athletic field or in the concert hall or on stage or when they are shown off like trophies at dinner parties? Where is meaning for the young adult who has moved to Atlanta, who is not in a job they want to be in, and is having a hard time connecting their, their passion to their profession? Where is meaning for the person who experiences dissatisfaction with the trajectory of their career? Where is meaning for the one that has been dissatisfied by the choices they keep making or the way of life that they keep living? A way of life that might lack a center that holds or lack any substantive contributions to the good of the world. Where is meaning for the retiree who is questioning their value to their church or to their community or even to their family? Questions of meaning are always before us, mice are always above us, dragons are always below us. This, too, is our crisis. These are our questions. But, but, in the midst of this crisis, in the awareness of these questions, comes a radical, transformational word on this day that God has responded to crisis. That God has responded to questions. That God has responded to the dragons below us, the mice above us, and the wells in which we find ourselves even now, God has responded 
by raising Jesus from the dead. This claim impacts us. It impacts the world in at least two ways. First, in this claim, in Christ's resurrection, we will be raised to everlasting life in the age to come. The word on the street is that the dragon doesn't win. The dragon doesn't prevail. And although his presence is daunting, we will not be consumed by him, but be consumed by the very presence and love of God in life everlasting. Second, what the resurrection claims on us and and how it stakes its claim on us is it claims that resurrection life can be lived now, not just waiting for the sweet by and by, but that a new life can be lived and life to the full can be lived right now in our time and in our place that we can learn and live into what it means to be fully alive, what it means to be fully human, which I would contend means to live like Jesus lived. That's what it means to be fully alive. That's what it means to be fully human. But friends, let us be honest how difficult it is to believe such things. How difficult it is to trust that this event that took place 2,000 years ago accomplishes such joy and such glory. How does an enlightened scientific, skeptical, or even ambivalent heart or mind come to such a conclusion, come to trust such an audacious word. Despite witnesses from generation upon generation, resurrection remains obscure and mysterious and in many ways inconceivable. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead and what it means for our lives and for the life of the world is difficult, if not impossible, to fathom. And this then becomes for the one who hopes and longs to believe a second crisis. For not only do we have a crisis of meaning and a crisis of faith, but we also find ourselves in a crisis of hope. Dare we hope in such a radical claim? Dare we put our trust in such a radical claim? Dare we organize the very core of our lives around this radical claim? It is a crisis of hope as well. What dare we hope? Should we hope in such a thing? To be sure, great theology has been masterfully articulated and eloquent sermons have been preached to explain the depth and the breadth of the meaning of the claim that gets us in this room today. I, however, want to hone in on on a very common and very ordinary word, one that might not fit in those grand volumes of theology or those perfectly spoken sermons. It is a word that appears quite often in our day-to-day vocabulary It is a word that appears in our text from the gospel writer Luke several times, and it appears in the New Testament over 2,800 times, and yet is a word that is hardly theological, at least on the surface. 
It is a word that is totally inadequate. And yet, by some measure of God's grace, might be, might be for us this morning, the exact word that we need to hear. It might be the word that God intends for us to hear as we face our own crisis, our own questions, the dragons, the mice, and the wells of life. In the Greek, it is only two letters long, and it's made up of the letter delta and epsilon, and in the Greek, it is pronounced day, and we translate it in English to the word but. But. I see some middle schoolers laughing right now. The Gospel writer Luke actually uses the word twice in the second verse of chapter 24. And if we're going to insert the word in the places that it, that it appears in a way that the English translation doesn't do because it doesn't make sense in English, it would read something like this, but they, meaning the women, found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. One sentence, two conjunctions. But they found the stone rolled away, but when they went in, they did not find the body. This very common, very ordinary word is, as I said, a conjunction that is sometimes used to introduce the unexpected in light of the first clause. Something unexpected and unpredictable and unpredicted in the first clause. For example, take the line from Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. The reality of the first clause, blindness, is not negated by the second clause, but now I see. The first clause is real. The first clause is true. The first clause happened. The crisis is real. The questions are real. The experiences of wells are real. The dragon and the mice are real. But so is the second clause. The word but lets us know that something unpredictable and unexpected has happened or is about to take place. I once was blind, but now I see. Might we then say that one way the gospel is understood is through this very common and very ordinary word but. Might we say that resurrection is God's unpredictable and unexpected work in light of the first clause called crucifixion. Might we say it the way the gospel writer Luke says it in the book of Acts, the 13th chapter, even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, they asked Pilate to have Jesus killed. When they had carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb but God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. Resurrection is God's unexpected work of new life in light of the first clause of a world marred by death. Resurrection is God's unexpected work of hope in light of the first clause of a world marred by hopelessness. Resurrection is God's unexpected work of justice in a world marred by the first clause of injustice. 
Resurrection is God's unexpected work of meaning in a world plagued by dragons and mice and deep, deep, deep wells. God is the God of the unexpected and unpredictable act in response to the first clause. Friends, this is the way God works. It happens time and time again throughout the scripture where a conjunction presents new activity, a new movement of the spirit, a new act of God. Abraham and Sarah were too old to give birth to a nation, but God made a way for Israel to be born. Joseph's brothers meant to do him harm But God, says Joseph, meant his well for the good of the world. Jonah was thrown overboard and was on his way toward drowning, but God sent a great fish and saved Jonah's life. Mary, Mary was too young and too poor to do anything significant in the world, but God chose her to bear Christ for the salvation of the cosmos. Friends, do you know what that means? Do you you know what that means? It means that God is in the business of rendering the unexpected and unpredictable in response to the first clauses of our lives. The dragons the mice, the wells. And so I ask you, what wells and dragons and mice do you need to be delivered from today? What are the first clauses that mark your life right now, that define your life right now? Where do you long for God to insert a conjunction? Are you ready to let God do that in your own life? Are you ready to turn more fully to God who inserts a conjunction in human history, who inserts the greatest conjunction in human history, the eternal conjunction of human history. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal but to a life and an existence marked by dragons, mice, and wells. Friends, are you ready to have the first clause of death be met by new life? Are you, are you ready? To have the first clause of sin be met by forgiveness? Are you ready to have the first clause of despair be met by hope? Are you ready to have the first clause of self-indulgence and self-interest be met by a purpose bigger than your own want and your own will? If the answer is yes, then I would encourage you to turn toward God, to move toward God, to see the empty tomb, to see that he's not there, and experience for yourself God's great conjunction. Resurrection power that will render the unexpected and unpredictable in your life even now. Friends, that is meaning. That is purpose. That is hope. That is Easter. Amen? Amen. Amen.